You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, good morning. And uh, kids, we want to welcome you to our Family Worship Sunday. Uh, We think it's vitally important that you worship alongside mom and dad and you see them worshiping in in their environment. Don't worry, in just a couple months, you're going to be able to take them over into your environment and worship with you and alongside of you at FX. Um, So make sure, yep, I I should have prepared for that and had a pause. Um, but uh, they will get to worship alongside of you. So make sure you um, just keep, keep your uh, dates open and be on the lookout for when FX is. Um, also, I should have paused again. Also, uh, some of you, you have a smartphone or a smart device um, and you're following along in the version app. Um, or you can follow along in the version app today's sermon. You can find all the notes, all the scripture references, quotes. Um, all you have to do is open up your version app. And at the bottom right, click on more and then click on events. And you'll find the brook right there and all of our notes. And you can add your own personal notes as well. Well, I think we would all agree that buying a home can be a very exciting time, but also a very stressful one. Um, after all, you spend endless hours looking at houses online, trying to envision yourself in that home, and then even more hours walking through each home. And there is so much to consider, right? Will this house fit our growing family? How about will it fit our furniture? Do we like the layout or the flow of the home? What do those neighbors look like, especially the next door ones? Um, Or is there a community pool? What school system is it in? And is there an HOA? And if so, how much are the dues yearly? Um, Now, speaking of that last one, I can remember the day we closed on our house. And after we signed the last page, um, not only were we greeted with a set of keys, but we were also given what I have here in my hands. The Declaration of Covenants, Conditions and Restrictions for Biltmore Station. 28 pages to be exact. Don't we love covenants and restrictions? And you see, these were various obligations that now I was called to follow. And it didn't matter if I had a different opinion or I disagreed. Um, I was called to follow them. And so as I stood up from that table, now as a new homeowner in that community, I had obligations that I was called to follow. And this morning, as we continue our series through the book of Exodus, we come to chapters 21 through 24, and we see that the Israelites are no different. They have obligations. These chapters reveal to us the various obligations that the Israelites are called to fulfill as God's chosen people. And don't worry, um, we are not going to be diving into all of these verses, or we would be here throughout the day on into the night, since there are 118 verses we would have to get through. But more importantly, we're not going to dig into each of these because if we did, we would miss the very heart of what God wants to say to you and I this morning in our context. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Before we go any further, I ask that you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just are so thankful this morning that we get to come and we get to fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we get to worship the one true living God. And Father, we are so thankful this morning that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So God, we ask that in this time that your word, through your Holy Spirit, would speak to us 
If there are opinions that don't honor or glorify you or don't line up with your word, God, we pray that you would tear those down, Father. If there are walls of sin that we're holding on to, God, we pray that you would blow up those walls. God, if there's someone in here that doesn't know you, Jesus, as their savior, and they've never been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we pray today would be the day of their salvation. And so, God, we pray now in these next few minutes, Lord, that you would give us your ears, you would give us your heart to receive your message. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Um, There is a hike that my dad and Kelly and I love to take every chance we get when we get to go out to Rocky Mountain National Park. And the name of the hike is the Timber Lake Trail. In total, it's a little over eight miles long. And uh, it takes about a little over four miles to get in. But when you get to the top, um, the views are totally breathtaking. We actually have a picture of it. And really, this picture is the best I can find. And it doesn't even do the view that you have justice as you get up to the top, really, of almost the mountain. And you see this amazing view, this amazing lake. And really, depending on the season, you may find all those mountains surrounding it covered in snow, uh, snow. And it's simply breathtaking. Now, I want to imagine you to imagine just for a second if you got, if you went all the way back to the start of the trailhead where it said Timberlake Trail and right below it, it had pictures like this and many others. And it had a caption that said, hey, when you get tired or exhausted, keep pushing because the view is totally worth it. It's breathtaking. Imagine that these pictures alone would cause people to keep trudging through and keep going all, all around those switchbacks and keep going up and down and dealing with the elevation change and, and the exhaustion that comes from that, and even crossing creeks to get there. And when they got to the top, they would say, yes, this is beautiful. This is breathtaking. This is worth it. And sitting on this side of the cross, it is the same way for us this morning. We have the ability and the privilege to look at the mountaintop first, where Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders are. And we get to see that where we're going to go today is very beautiful and powerful. But in order to do that, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Before we do that, though, I I want to draw out a few things from the passage we just read. In chapter 7, we are given the title of chapters 20, starting in verse 22, all the way through 23, verse 19. And that set of scripture is known as the book of the covenant. Now, what the book of the covenant did was it basically took the Ten Commandments that were just given and expound upon them, fleshed them out for the Israelites. 
it gave them the instructions so the Israelites could see what does it look like to be God's people in our ordinary, everyday lives. The second thing I want to make sure you notice is the people's reaction. Not just once, but twice when Moses reads the book of the covenant to them, they eagerly accept the laws. They don't go, well, God, you're just out to ruin my fun. I guess we don't have any other choice, so we'll, be, we'll obey them. No, they eagerly receive the book of the covenant, these laws. Why? Well, you have to first remember where they came from. They were delivered out of Egypt under an oppressive Pharaoh by God. And now 2 million people, including women and children, are trying to figure out how in the world do we live with one another? What, what's, what is Sabbath? What are we supposed to do at Sabbath? What are the festivals we're supposed to recognize? How are we supposed to treat a, a thief? What are we to do with our oxen, our sheep, or our, our, our grain fields? What does it look like to live with one another? More importantly, what does it look like to honor and glorify God? And so now they have the guidelines and the obligations they're called to follow but they also eagerly accept them because they know who their God is, just like hopefully you know who our God is this morning. They knew it was their God that had redeemed them and called them out of Egypt, out of slavery. It wasn't because they were good, because they were talented, because God just loved them more than anybody else. No, it was God's doing who had redeemed them. And then they had seen God provide for them over and over and go before them and behind them. And so the Israelites knew, man, our God is good. He is trustworthy and he is loving. And so, yes, give us the book of the covenant, Moses. We will live by these things. So what were those laws? Well, if you jump back to Exodus 21, um, verse 1, <clears throat> we begin to see. It says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So Moses gives the Ten Commandments. He's then called up back, back up the mountain by God. And God says, Moses, make sure you understand and make sure the people understand. You lay out all these laws before them and, understand, and make sure they understand that I'm calling them to these things if they are to be my people. And you see, if we were just coming to this passage, let's say in our daily reading plan, we would probably, when we get to passages like this, we'd probably read through it and probably blow through it and go, well, I just got to read it to say I read it. And even the things that stick out to us are the ones we'd be, we'd be left scratching our head, maybe laughing at, or just going, that's plain weird. I don't understand what's going on. Take, for example, chapter 23, verse 19. Don't bull a young goat in its mother's milk. Um, now, I'm not, I, I've never seen Rachel Ray, or Southern Living, feature this recipe ever. And hopefully you're not going home and cooking it because it will literally not sit well with you today. Or take chapter 22, verse 6. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so, it's, so that it spreads to another man's field and burns their grain, you need to make restitution. Pretty sure while some of you were working in your yard today, you weren't working in your grain field or yesterday. You weren't working in your grain field and then you didn't just happen to see that thorn bush in your yard and go, man, I've got to burn that thing up. It just didn't happen. Or how about 21 verse 33, when a man digs a pit and doesn't cover it and an ox or donkey falls into, into it, the man who dug that pit must make restitution. What are we supposed to do with that? Because none of us have oxen or donkeys running around in our backyard. But my favorite it's chapter 21, verse 17. Whoever curses his father or mother will be put to death. How appropriate for family worship Sunday. There are probably kids looking at mom like, is this the end of the road for me? Um, am I, am, is, it, is it the final breath? No, don't worry, kids. You're, you're covered. It's all good. 
And before you think those are the only weird laws, I want you to consider a few weird ones that we have all across our country on our state books. In Hawaii, it's illegal to put a coin in one's ear. Go figure. All right. All I could envision though, as I was reading this all is trying to put a coin up in Chad's ear. And as you can envision, it didn't go well for my life. Um, this is not some good magic trick either. It just happens to be a law in Hawaii in Arizona. It's illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. I mean, who knew donkeys love bathtubs, all right? It's like their sleep number bed. They, that's how they roll better on their back, but sorry, donkeys in Arizona, you can't do it. Or Taking our great, uh, great state of Alabama, it's illegal to drive blindfolded, all right? I, that sounds fun right there. And I'm sure many people actually are doing that if you've been on those roads lately. They're still driving blindfolded and we could keep going. And you see, the reason why I draw out these things is that many of these laws, whether it's the crazy ones in our state or the ones in this scripture passage or all throughout the book of the covenant that we could look at while you and I are left scratching our head going, that is just weird. That does not make any sense. You see, if we were to put ourselves in their shoes in that day and time, it would start making sense. And we begin to understand that law, except the one in Alabama. That we still, I still can't understand that one. But you see, context is key. And so when we come to the book of the covenant in these chapters, while many of these laws don't apply to us today, they absolutely would apply to the Israelites in their context. They would have come to this and they would have heard these laws and go, okay, I see how God has called us to live. I see how he's called us to treat the thief. I see how he's called us to make restitution. I see what he calls us to do about worship and the Sabbath. I see how he's called us to judge in all these situations. This is what God expects. But can I tell you the tragedy, though, of what happens so often, even in my own life, when we come to passages like this or chapters like this, we look at it. Maybe we look at the titles and we go, yep, that doesn't apply to us anymore. And we just flip through it. Maybe we just ignore it and get to the part that we like. Tell me something good. Or we do read it and we just go, I just got to read it really quick to say I've check it off and to say I've read it. And that's a tragedy because what happens when you have that type of attitude is you miss the greater principle of what God is trying to communicate to you and I this very morning. And if we believe that all of God's word is living and active and it's useful for teaching, well, then guess what? It means that it demands, all scripture demands that we give our attention to it, not just the parts that we like or that we enjoy. And what happens is when you give your attention to these chapters in the book of the covenant, what is revealed to you and I is this. God has redeemed you so that you would be distinct from culture and proclaim his glory to it. God didn't just redeem you and call you out and then say, okay, I've shed the precious blood of my son on that cross. So now you've been called out of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now go ahead and live however you want to live. After all, it's your life. No. Instead, he says, I've called you out and I've called you to be distinct from culture, to be holy for I am holy. And what is interesting is if you were to read all these verses, what you would find it's saying is that God cares not just about the major things in your life, but he cares about all the little small details in your everyday ordinary life. And isn't that where we're going to live most of our life? Just in the ordinary. And God says, I care about all those things. And I care that you would be distinct from culture around you because I've called you out. And so one might ask, well, how are we called to be distinct? Well, if we were to give an overview of these chapters, 
we would see at least four areas that God has called us to be distinct. And this is not an exhaustive list. We could go in a lot of different ways in these 118 verses. But I want to draw out four that I believe that God wants us to see this morning. The first one, we are called to be distinct in how we treat others. Look at chapter 21, starting in verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. And so we read this and we hear that word slaves and you may go, well, Chip, how does this apply? We don't have slaves or servants and you're exactly right. Praise the Lord that we don't. But also as you read this passage, what you could start cringing as you hear that word slave, as you envision uh, the stain on our country's history and so many other countries like it. And maybe you envision or what flashes in your mind is the current epidemic in our world called slave trafficking that is happening right here in our very own city at right at this moment. But regardless, the type of slave or servant that the scripture is talking about is not the same that we think about or that took place in our own country. We know this because if you just looked a little bit further down in chapter 21, verse 16, look what it says. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in in possession of him shall be put to death. But somehow our forefathers chose, we're we're just going to ignore this passage and others like it. And we're not going to live by that. And so when we come to this passage, it is totally different. That word slave is totally different. In some of your translations, it would say servant. And what we find in this passage is that the biblical form of slavery, it had a constructive purpose. It was good for the master, but it was also good for the servant or the slave as well. It was constructive. This was distinct from the culture and the world around it and how they would treat slaves. This was totally different. These slaves would willingly enter into slavery. And I want to give you the four most common reasons why they would enter and place themselves into slavery. The first reason was they were poor. They couldn't provide for themselves. And so what they would do is they would sell themselves to a master who was better off and they would start working for that master. And that master was then responsible for their well-being and they would receive the benefits of serving that master. The second way was maybe they were in debt to maybe their neighbor and they couldn't pay off that debt. And so they would serve their neighbor as that neighbor's slave until the debt was paid off. The third way was that they would sell their daughter as a slave, as you would see in verse seven. And we don't have time to read all that that entails. And before you think, man, how could that, how could that happen? Man, that is so cruel. That is messed up that they would sell their daughter into slavery. It's not what you would think. The father and the mother would sell their daughter into slavery because they would sell it into a family that was better off. And so that that daughter would then marry either the master or the master's son. And that daughter would receive all the benefits of being grafted into that family. And as a result, probably her family would receive some of those benefits as well. That mom and dad knew that they could not give the benefits that their daughter deserved. And so they would sell her so she could be grafted in. Or the last way, the fourth way was thieves. 
if a thief would steal something, they would have to pay restitution. And if they couldn't pay it off, they would have to be that person's slave until they paid it off. And not just that, but they would probably have to pay even more than what they stole. Just imagine for a second right now, if we took out all the thieves and said, you're going to have to work for the person that you stole that thing from. But on top of that, you're going to have to pay probably even double what you just stole. I think our jails would look a little bit different if we still followed that one. But as we read all these passages dealing with slavery, what we see is God put very strict parameters on what it meant to be a slave. In verse two, God would say they are to serve six years, but on the seventh, they are to go free. It doesn't matter if the debt is paid off or not. They are a free man. And if we had time, we could turn to Deuteronomy 15 and we would see that it calls the masters. They are required to take care of that free man now of their previous slave and give him everything he needs to start this new life. God put strict parameters on what it meant to be a slave. And please hear me, what we see at the very heart of this is God doesn't care about classes. He does not put one class above the other. He does not put one color above the other. But what we see in this passage is the dignity of every human. Every human has value and freedom was always the aim. It was always the aim. And these Israelites were not some oppressive taskmasters. After all, why would they want to be? They'd just come out of slavery in Egypt where they were oppressed. Rather, what we see is this form of slavery was one that they could care for their fellow Israelites. It was constructive, as we just said. And so this morning, though, you might go, okay, Chip, we got that. But how in the world does this still apply to us today? But while you don't have a slave or a servant, and again, praise the Lord that you don't. We do have people that we pay that serve us. Maybe you have a bug man, a lawn man, a fertilizer guy. Today, when you go out to eat, you'll have a waiter that waits on you and serves you. Maybe where you are at um, at work, you have a, a position where you have a couple of people over you or you have hundreds of people over you. Regardless, we are called not to be taskmasters, but to care for them, to see their value, to promote their welfare, to humble ourselves and to serve them. And most importantly, point them to Jesus. Parents, it also means that with your children, they're not ser- your servants. And we have to guard ourselves. As I was talking to Reed about this passage, we have to guard ourselves and watch how we speak to our children and not just lay it on them. But we're called, even when we lose, imp- lose our impatience to run to them, which obviously will happen to run to them and say, hey, son, I'm so sorry I lost my patience and I lashed out at you. I did not show Jesus. Would you forgive me? We should see them as the gifts they truly are on loan to us by God and that we're called to shepherd them and point them to Jesus. And so in this passage, we're called to be distinct in how we treat others and how we love them regardless of color or class or age. But that's just the first area we're called to be distinct. The second area that we see in this passage is our lives should be distinct in the way we seek restitution. Verse 33 of chapter uh, 21 all the way through verse 15 of chapter 22. It deals with one scenario after another where restitution should be provided, whether it's a loss of property or an animal. And what is very clear in all these is that the offender should pay restitution. And depending on the crime, it determined how much restitution should be paid. 
And while you don't have oxen and we don't have grain fields and we don't have to worry about that, the very heart of the law is still the same. We should be people that seek restitution, that make things, make our wrongs right. And it just starts with going to people and saying, I'm sorry, but it actually doesn't end there for the believer, for the Christ follower. We're called to even go above and beyond. That's what you would see if we even had time to look at the restitution part. They were not just required to pay back what was broken or what was burned, but they were called to go above and beyond, to give even more. And it should be the same for our life. So kids, today, if you're outside and you're throwing the baseball and all of a sudden you launch it and it goes into your neighbor's garage window and let's just say it shatters it or or maybe it just even cracks it. It doesn't break it completely. Instead of running into the house and hopefully um, your neighbor not ever seeing it and just ignoring it, not telling your mom and dad, you immediately instead, you run over, even though you're scared to death, you run over, you knock on that door and you tell your neighbor, hey, look, I'm so sorry. I accidentally threw the baseball and it broke that window. And I'm going to go over and tell my mom and dad and they're going to pay for it. Sorry, mom and dad, you got to still spend some money. All right, right now. All right. Or let's just say you borrow a video game, kids, or maybe for parents, you borrow a power tool. And while you're borrowing it, it breaks in your possession. Well, you're called call to not just hand it back to them and go, man, I hope they never play this game. I hope they don't see it's broken. Maybe they'll never use it or they'll just say it's okay. No, you're called to make things right. You're called to go buy them that video game, even though it costs you 50, 60, $100 nowadays, it seems like. Or you're supposed to go to to Lowe's or Home Depot and not find the same tool, but the cheapest one and go, well, this is the cheapest. I'm going to buy it. No, maybe you find the exact model and you say, well, for $30 more, they can get a little bit better of a tool. I'm going to go above and beyond to make things right. And these are just examples. We could keep going on and on, but the heart of the law is still the same. As God's people, we should make restitution with one another. We should go above and beyond. Not like the world that would say, well, I broke it. They've got money. They can go ahead and fix it. Or you know what? I'm too busy. I don't care. Uh, Maybe they'll just not even notice that their mailbox is just torn down. Um, I'm too busy. I'm not going to fix it. We should be different from the culture around us and say, I'm sorry, but go above and beyond to make things right. Why? Well, Tony Morita in his exalting Jesus commentary, I think he says it perfectly. He says, the gospel changes us. It creates in us a new heart of love for God and neighbor. The gospel creates not just a heart to make things right with others that we have offended, but to go beyond, to lovingly serve and to generously give. So we're called to be distinct in that we seek restitution. The third area we're called to be distinct is that we should be distinct in the compassion we show for the disadvantaged. Check out chapter 22. Let's start in verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For remember, Israelites, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Notice who's doing the judging there. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. 
These laws were meant to protect the disadvantaged, the one that the world would say are the down and outs, the no goods, those that can't help themselves, those that need to just pick up their bootstraps and and just get on with life and help themselves. The ones that our very world would actually take take advantage of. God's word says, no, you're called to be distinct and that you're supposed to take care of the disadvantaged, the sojourner, the immigrant, the exchange student, the international student over at UAH the widowed, the orphaned, and the poor. And what you do, what happens is you read all these laws, you see God's heart is that he cares and he loves these people. And he doesn't call, just call his people to this, but he demands that as a Christ follower, you be about loving and caring the disadvantaged. I mean, just think about it just for a second. Right now, right here in our own county, we have immigrants that have come over because of our great jobs, and they work here in our city. We have international students going to a great school at UAH that maybe we're called to serve and to love and to break bread with. We have widows all throughout our city. We have orphans in the Harris home and in our foster systems. And we have poor people all around us. And God says, I'm calling you to do more than just go, well, that just blessed bless their heart. I'm, I'm just so sad for them and shed a tear. God is calling you to do more. He's saying, I want you to put your compassion into action. Remember what James would say is faith without works is absolutely dead. God calls us to care and to love the least of these, those that are the disadvantaged, which means it may mean for you and I, we have to open up our home to people, to immigrants that we're going, I don't understand their culture. Maybe I have a hard time right now understanding them, but I'm called to love them and befriend them and to have them over for a meal. Maybe it's with a widow. Maybe I just go over to their house. And I sit down and talk to them because they just want to have somebody to talk with. Maybe it's I grab my hammer and I just help somebody in need. Maybe it's I spend some of my own hard-earned money and I help and I give to somebody else because they have needs that aren't being met. Or maybe I give them some financial classes that they can't provide on their own. Maybe it's with the orphan that I just go and be a tutor. I'm a role model for them. Or even as God lays on your heart, maybe it means that you adopt them. But you see, God is calling his people to do more than just to say, well, that breaks my heart. And can I be honest, what what I see in this passage is, is what it doesn't say. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that it is the government's job or priority to take care of the disadvantaged. It doesn't. And and all throughout scripture, you you can't show one, we can't, we can't find one place where it would say that. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the government doesn't have a role, but it's not the government's priority. What I also don't say, see in this passage is that it says it's okay to just hide behind your keyboard and post your opinion on social media and say, you're bringing awareness to that issue. When ultimately, let's just be honest. Most of the time when those posts happen, it's not because we're bringing awareness. It's just We're letting people know our opinion. But I don't see that in in the scripture passage in our day and time as well, saying it's okay to do that and think that you're doing enough. What I see through this passage and through all passages throughout scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is it's been the very heart of God for the church, for his people, first and foremost, to be about taking care of and loving the disadvantaged. It has to become a priority of ours. It has to move from just sympathy. I mean, imagine just for a second what our county would look like. 
If we said, God, I want you to break down opinions that I've had, maybe because of my upbringing, maybe because of the political party that I, I reside with, God, would you break down opinions? God, would you, would you convict me of maybe the wrong attitude that I've had about helping the disadvantaged? God, all I know is that you've called me as your follower to be on the front line. So God, would you put me on the front lines? And yes, God, I know that it's gonna hurt sometimes. I know there's gonna be sacrifices sometimes. I know I'm gonna cry sometimes, but I know the reward is worth it. I know that you've called me as, my, as, as your follower to be about these things. I believe No, I I know that our county would look different if the people of God said, let's be about these things and let's just start right here, right now, and let's put our compassion in action. It has to become a priority. But the last thing, the last area that we're called to be distinct is in our worship. So as you come to chapter 23, we see that God lays out the laws of the Sabbath and the three festivals that they are called to continually celebrate. Um, Three times, to be exact, a year. Festivals all rich in the gospel message that all point to Jesus. For the sake of time, though, we can't dive into them and explain their meanings. But let me encourage you, mom and dad, if you have a chance, dive into these with your children because they are powerful and they are rich in the gospel and you will see Jesus. But here's the thing. No longer do we have to celebrate these feasts. No longer do we have to offer sacrifices or go before a priest. No longer do we have to go and journey to Jerusalem three times a year. Why? Because they have all been fulfilled in the lamb of God, the great high priest who has shed his blood for you and me on that cross. And so our worship is called to look different. Now what we are called to be, if we are a new creation, we are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That's what Paul would say in a passage we know very well, Romans 12.1. Paul would say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which means even though I'm living, I'm called to die to self. I'm called to die to my will, to my desires, to how I think this world should operate, my opinions of making much about myself. I'm called to die to my pride and say, God, I want to be about advancing your kingdom. I want your will to be done through me. I want to see, I want to have people see Jesus living in and through me. So we constantly die to to ourselves. And so boys and girls, hopefully you already know, but this worship service is just part of, of your worship. It's not all of it. Because as this passage tells us that we're called to be a living sacrifice, which means every single minute of every single day, we are to die to self and live for Jesus and give him the glory that he alone is due, which means you're called to worship Jesus in your video games, even like video games like Fortnite. You're called to worship Jesus in your homework. You're called to worship Jesus when you're hanging out with your friends or when you're talking with your parents. Parents, you're called to worship Jesus when you're doing the laundry or your yard work or when you're around your coworkers. Everything is about making much of Jesus and advancing his kingdom. Our lives are to be lived out as living sacrifices. We are to be distinct in our worship. I guess you could sum up all these laws, even the ones we didn't read, though, with one word, love. God loves his people and loves us so much that he would say, here's how I've called you to be distinct. You don't have to guess. 
But even Jesus would talk about it. And when he was asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, in Matthew 22, starting in verse 37 through 40, Jesus would say these words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all these laws could be summed up in one word, love. So are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your God who's redeemed you and saved you? Are you proclaiming his glory to a lost and dying world? And so we journey up the trail and we come to Exodus 34. And again, we, we can't deal with every part of this passage, all very powerful, but we come and to where we left off or where we started this morning and we see Nadab and Abihu and Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders, they go up that mountain and they see God. We don't know what type of, what, how they see God or what it looks like, but we just know they see God or some image, some version of God. But then they dine with God. Um, imagine what that would have been like just for a second. I mean, we don't read, we don't read about these elders anymore, about what happened and how their life changed. But I would imagine, don't you, that after they saw God with their own eyes, the one who had rescued them and gone before them and behind them and provided them manna, I bet you their lives were radically different. But on top of that, they actually dined with God. How amazing that moment must have been for them. And while we see this feast that they get to celebrate in, we don't get to celebrate in this feast. But there are two feasts that we still do get to celebrate in. The first one is on this side of eternity, and it is the Lord's Supper, which we're going to have the privilege of partaking in in just a few minutes. But I want to read to you what Philip Ryken says in his commentary on Exodus, um, because I don't believe I could say it any better. But he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he says, the one feast that Jesus has ordained for the church is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Every other festival in the Christian calendar is strictly optional, but the Lord's Supper is to be observed frequently until Christ returns. This sacrament celebrates many of the same things as the Old Testament festivals. The bread comes from the bounty of God's provision and reminds us that among other things, he takes care of our daily needs. The cup represents the blood of Christ's sacrifice. It announces that God has provided what he has promised through the old sacrifices, full atonement for sin. The festival we are called to keep is the Lamb's High Feast, and so we're going to do that in just a couple of minutes. And boys and girls, or maybe there's somebody else that you've never received Jesus, we ask that you would withhold from the Lord's Supper because this is for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. But boys and girls, if you haven't, let me encourage you to talk to your mom and dad and ask them why they take the Lord's Supper. What a powerful opportunity, mom and dad, to share the gospel with your kids but there is also another feast. There's another feast that one day we will get to celebrate and it's on the other side of eternity when Jesus calls us home. And it's called the wedding feast of the lamb. And what a day that will be when our faith becomes sight and we, we, we actually get to dine with God. How amazing, how beautiful, how breathtaking will that be to see God and to dine with him. But, but until that time, we are called as God's people to be distinct, to be holy as he is holy. Let's pray.
So Heavenly Father, we come to your word. We see the book of the covenant. Father, I guess, first of all, I have to apologize where so often when I come to these passages, I act as if it doesn't apply to me. God, and I just think that they're weird and I just quickly move through it and I miss the greater principle of what you're calling us to. God, I ask that you would forgive me where there are areas in my life where I, I look more distinct and I look more like the world than I do you, Jesus. God, maybe it's opinions that I hold. Maybe it's political views that I have. God, but I ask that you would just break down those walls in my own life. God, that you would show me the areas that I'm not holy like you're calling me to be holy. God, that I would not come to the book of the covenant this morning and hear these words of how you're calling me to be distinct and just simply go, okay, I get it. But then we do nothing with your word. God, forgive us when I and when we are not distinct from the culture around us. God, would you give us a heart for the disadvantaged, for the sojourner, for the immigrant. Because right now we are sojourners as well. This place is not our home. So God, would you let our hearts break for those immigrants, for the international students or the exchange student? God, would you let our hearts break for the widowed and the orphan and the poor and would we have compassion on them? God, would you let us treat others regardless of class or color or language or age as they are valued and that we would care for their well-being? God, that we would be distinct in our worship. God, that our worship would be all about you, not a sports team, not a hobby, not a bank account, not even our own family. But God, our worship would be distinct and it would be all about proclaiming the glory of God the one who has redeemed us and saved us and called us out of slavery because of the precious blood of Jesus. Oh, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because you've washed away our sins all to you. You We owe it all to you to give you everything and to be living sacrifices. So God, this morning, maybe there's some in here that need to just come to the cross and they surrender an opinion that they have over to you. God, maybe there's some this morning that, that there's sin that they're just holding on to, and maybe it's a certain attitude dealing with a certain person or people. God, we ask that you would break down those walls. God, maybe there's a lost person that needs to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And God, we pray that it would happen today because salvation can be theirs. So God, this morning, we ask that you would have your way. God, we ask that we'd be a people that leave here and not just today, but through this week, through this year, that we would be distinct from the culture around it. God, we're so thankful for this time that we get to celebrate in this feast and the Lord's Supper and remember what you have done for us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.
Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.